Actually, I'm Adam Conover, and Americans do not just have a car culture, we have a car society. 83% of American adults drive frequently, and a similar percentage of all drivers say they enjoy driving at least somewhat. Now, look, I am not one of them. As you'll know if you listen to my earlier podcast with Salita Reynolds, I am not a car guy. I do not own a car. I do not enjoy driving. In America, life is a highway, but, you know, if I have to ride it all night long, I'd rather just take the bus. And I do. Now, look, I get that I'm unusual in that respect, but the fact is, when you take a step back and examine our society objectively from, like, the perspective of an alien come down to Earth looking at it for the first time, our transportation system looks very weird. Why is it that in order to just move about our own communities and participate in the world, we need to make a five-figure expenditure on a two-ton metal tank? Not to mention that we continue to pay to fuel it, store it when we're not using it, it and we have to buy government mandated insurance for it forever. And the reason we make that purchase is because we all know that this transportation method murders people regularly. Like, this does not seem like an obvious way to organize a society's transportation system. So why did we organize it this way? You know, plenty of other countries have transportation systems in which car ownership is the exception, not the rule. And it's not like the Geico Gecko wrote our constitution, so why do we build our society around cars starting so early in our histories? Like, in the 1930s in Europe, cars were still a toy for aristocrats, but by that time, one half of American households already owned one. The infrastructure for cars in America by that point was already decades ahead of anywhere else. Or think about this. We know that cars kill. Around 37,000 people died in car crashes in 2017. And our rate of road fatalities is four times what it is in the UK. And we treat these deaths like there's some kind of unfortunate inevitability, like cancer or heart disease. But they're not. We have mechanisms that could make cars safer if we wanted to. We could have been putting speed limiters on cars to make them less deadly. Or we could turn four-way intersections into roundabouts. But, look, we're a nation of Sammy Hagar's. It's not that we can't drive 55. It's that we will not. I Can't Drive 55 was the name of a Sammy Hagar song. I hope that was clear. But why is it that we continue as a nation to prioritize speed above human life? Or consider our interstate highway system. Building it took the largest and most expensive public works project in United States history. That's right. This thing makes the Hoover Dam look like a dustbuster. Vacuum cleaner joke. So why do we build it? Instead of improving the sprawling system of rail lines we already had. For that matter, why do we let passenger rail wither and die in this country? And why is it next to impossible for us to build new railways now? Recently, China built 10,000 miles of high-speed rail in just a decade. But in that time, America couldn't even manage to build a train between Los Angeles and Bakersfield. It makes no sense. 
Well, to help answer these questions and to explain to us the history of how America became a car society and to examine where we might be driving off to next, our guest today is Dan Albert. He's a historian and his recent book, Are We There Yet? The American Automobile Past, Present, and Driverless is a thoughtful and incredibly interesting history of the car in American society. Without further ado, please welcome Dan Albert. Dan, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. I'm excited for the invitation. Thank you. (laughs) So we've been talking about how the car took over America's transportation system. You have studied the subject extensively. Uh, What did you find? What is the thesis of your book in a nutshell? Well, I think the thing to understand that uh, uh, is not so much about the car taking over America or even America just jumping on the car and saying, you know, we want cars, but that it's really a very complicated process. And we're in a world today where people are very divided, you know, bicycle rider versus a pickup truck driver. And uh, (laughs) to me, I think once we all understand the process by which this happened, uh, maybe we can all kind of find a common ground and move forward together. There's a lot more pickup truck drivers than there are bicycle riders, though. I mean, in the eternal struggle between the two, I think the bicycle riders are losing generally. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And I have to mention, I heard you on the War on Cars podcast. Ah. I heard you talking with uh, Salida Reynolds. And uh, I want to make sure that you understand I've been in this fight a lot longer uh, than a lot of people. I wrote for uh, something called the Auto Free Press in New York in the 90s. And, um, you know, ever since the 1970s and, and my sense, even as a young person, that the end of the automobile was nigh uh, has really driven all of my uh, understanding. Um, on the other hand, uh, I don't look at people who drive pickup trucks as the enemy. I think we need to understand not at all uh, uh, what's going on. Yeah, yeah. I don't ever. I've said this many times. I don't have any judgment of how anybody chooses to get around their community because so much of the time, what determines how we can get around is how our community is designed. We simply don't have a choice. I mean, even in Los Angeles, I've spoken many times, I take the bus around, but even that is because I happen to live near bus stops and I happen to have the time and, you know, a lot of folks don't. Uh, So, you know, the question is not what should we all individually do? It's how did we design our society to be this way? How do we design the hard structures of our infrastructure and our actual communities? And then how do we change those going forward? Yeah. So if we if we take a look at that historically, I think there are two points that are pretty interesting. One is if you look at cities where the car really first showed up in the United States, uh, they had one experience. And if you look out in the rural areas, particularly farms uh, in the United States, they came along a little later and they had a very different experience. Uh, so in that first case, what you had really was young men in rut. These were transatlantic rich, the one-tenth of one percent. <laughs> and they, they were importing vehicles from Europe, and these were very powerful vehicles. Nobody needed these for transportation. I mean, if you think about it, the whole world was kind of invented without the automobile. In yeah, this was for little Lord Fauntleroy to uh, drive around pleasure driving uh, up and down Fifth Avenue, mowing down pedestrians for fun. Absolutely. And it's funny, <laughs> one of the things uh, that uh, happened was early on, uh, uh, Willie Vanderbilt, who was one of the worst of these guys, had a plan to build his own private highway right down the center of Long Island. And mm. the New York Times editorialized, well, I guess you could do that. But what fun is that? The real fun of this whole thing for these guys is uh, seeing how close they can get to pedestrians without killing them. 
I also know that in later years when, you know, I know from reading uh, Robert Caro's biography of Robert Moses, the the great and powerful and sometimes nefarious city planner of New York, that when the original highways, which were then called parkways, were built in the New York area, he designed them largely for pleasure driving. And the reason they were called parkways was uh, they put, you know, uh, trees on either side uh, in order to make them sort of a luxurious, you know, you'd take the car out for the weekend and drive upstate to see the countryside. Of course, now those same roads are being used by commuters every single day to, uh, you know, go back and forth from Westchester into Manhattan or or in and out of Long Island. Uh, but their original purpose was really designed for the pleasures of the rich. Oh, absolutely. And, and even by the time these parkways get going, we're talking about much more of a, a mass uh, ownership, certainly, you know, uh, uh, maybe average or above average in terms of wealth. But, you know, this is the point where people are really using vehicles to get out on the countryside. And one thing is very interesting about the parkway movement is that actually predates uh, the automobile. And you get uh, architects like Olmsted developing parkways. Mm. Uh, you also get uh, the automobile driver was not simply trying to get from point A to point B, but they were trying to use their vehicle to get out into nature, sort mm. of take the machine out into the garden. And the first um, manager of the National Park System built a parkway to connect all of the Western parks together and, mm. uh, in fact, democratized travel to the national parks. Uh, so the automobile and these parkways really did open up the countryside uh, to uh, a huge mass of Americans. But then, as you say, I mean, we just drive way too much and we've we've had to turn from basic roads and streets and highways to swallowing up our parkways and using them for things that they were really not intended for. Yeah. So you said that in the early days in the in the cities, it was really the idle rich um, who were buying automobiles. But in the countryside, it was different. How was it different in rural areas? So the big difference, I think you have to point to um, Henry Ford. Mm. Now, Henry Ford, uh, yeah, by the time Ford Motor Company was founded, he was on his third company. He had failed twice in the business. And the reason he had failed was he had investors who kept wanting to make money. And he kept saying, eh, who cares about that? I want to make the family horse. I want to make the universal car. And ultimately, that's what he did. And famously with the Model T, he built a very lightweight, very robust, very easily repaired, and very good for off-roading uh, hmm. vehicle. Really? And off-roading, it was, it was like an by ATV. the way, meant off-roading in uh, in the days when all of the roads were off-road. <laughs> right, dirt roads, so, uh, dirt roads and uh, not even gravel roads. Exactly. Mud, mud in the uh, uh, rainy season and dust the rest of the year. Absolutely. Mm. So, so that's what the Model T could do. And he had farmers in mind uh, when he built it. And he also believed that you would buy a Model T and you'd be done. No new new Model T every three years or anything like that. It was just huh. buy your car, keep your car. It went 40 miles an hour. He believed that was all anybody needed. The idea of building <laughs> building a car with, you know, glass uh, enclosures, why would you want that, right? This is a, this is a family horse. And so uh, motor vehicles went out into the countryside in huge numbers. He was building two million a year uh, at his peak uh, right around the beginning of uh, uh, World War One, and that really inverted the story of the automobile in the United States. It did not simply spread from the city and the wealthy. 
it actually um, grew from the grassroots as well. And I could see that being a, a huge, I mean, let's give credit to the automobile. That's a huge revolution if you live out in the countryside and you live many miles from the nearest town or, you know, the sort of thing you always hear in any kind of you know, historical fiction. Okay, well, well, let's, uh, hey, let's head to Boston. It'll only take us three days. <laughs> you know, that sort of, uh, uh, those sort of distances. Uh, I'm sure that's a that's a revolution in quality of life for uh, folks who live in the, in rural areas. Oh, absolutely. You, you, most people lived their lives within a, a several miles of home, right? So it's not so much that the automobile came in and replaced something else. It replaced isolation and it created a level of mobility or really a level of travel that just did not exist before. That's a huge transportation revolution for rural areas. But in the cities, you know, a couple miles from your home is all of Manhattan. And uh, also, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, there was more and more public transportation being built. And, and we had these, you know, we the cities were building ways to move people about the cities that were not reliant on owning a personal automobile. Um, you know, the uh, the New York City subway is is close to 100 years old, if not older than that. Uh, so which is, you know, about the we're talking about the same time periods here. So how did we move to a place where, OK, now this is the way that even the average person in suburban and urban areas is doing all of their travel? Right. So uh, the automobile does take over and it takes over all travel that does not happen until much, much later mm. than you might think. However, you talk about mass transit as uh, being available, so why did the automobile come in? Well, in fact, mass transit created the new geography of the city that bit by bit required the automobile. In other words, you go from having uh, cities even in the 1850s, that are only about as big as you can walk across. In other words, the, from the center of the city to your house, you know, it's about a half hour commute, but it was by either by foot or perhaps on something like a, an omnibus, which would mm. be a horse-drawn carriage. You could pay a nickel and uh, uh, get a ride. Yeah, a horse-drawn bus, basically. A horse-drawn bus. A little later, you get something that's actually called the horse bus, and this is the same thing, but now you have rails embedded in the road. Hmm. And people who first experienced talked about it as, wow, this is like going on a sled on ice. It's so smooth. It's so fast. And the <laughs> economics got better, and it got cheaper. And so that begins to spread things out. And then electricity. So once you have electric streetcars, now you begin to have very... Uh, um, a very much more uh, landscape available, land, I should say, available to live on and commute into the city or travel across the city or so forth. So the city really begins to expand. Other point, two other points really to understand. One is you have all these immigrants, you know, and, and you may have noticed America seems to be a little uncomfortable with certain kinds of immigrants. Yeah, we have a mixed relationship with the idea of immigration, certainly, or, or we have a pendulum that swings back and forth in terms of our ideas about it. Absolutely. And in particular, in this period, you're looking at immigrants coming from Eastern Europe. You're looking at Catholics. You're looking at Jews and other, quote unquote, undesirables. And, mm. and so there's this mass of people coming in. Uh, you know, cooking new things, uh, opening saloons. And so you get this middle class that would rather not be there. They'd rather be further out in the suburbs. There are streetcar suburbs well before the automobile. And then as the streetcar itself becomes more democratized, oh, no, those people are on the streetcars as well. It's a very short hop from there 
off of the streetcar and into the automobile. Uh, the, I mean, the pejorative term people use for that process is white flight associated with this. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, you have native-born whites who are uh, uh, going out to the ends of these streetcar lines where they can live in segregated neighborhoods. And w- one of the interesting things about the economics is these streetcar companies don't necessarily need to make money selling tickets on the streetcar. They mm. are real estate companies. Ah. They yeah, they build a nice white suburb outside of downtown and they say, oh, you can take the streetcar there. So they provide access and they uh, make money by building houses outside the city and selling them. That's fascinating. I mean, I, I had heard of that process about how in the early days of public transportation, we would build uh, suburbs or build uh, neighborhoods around, you know, you build the transit line first and then you build the uh, the apartments, the residences around that. I didn't realize that it had that racial dimension to it. It certainly did. And also it had that economic dimension to it. In mm-hmm. other words, it, it was laissez-faire capitalism. There was no like, let's plan a, a great network of streetcars. It was, where can I buy some cheap land and where can I run a, a, a rail line to it? These were privately owned rail lines. This was not public transport in the sense of uh, uh, government doing it. It was mass transport in the sense that there were a lot of people on one vehicle. But other than that, it was uh, it was pure commerce. I see. Thank you for the correction on that. But um, so you're saying that though that process sort of caused the city to spread out, and then those folks end up buying automobiles instead, so that they can sort of segregate themselves even more. And then I would imagine that. Our, the reliance on the automobile would then cause the city to push out even further because, you know, once you start getting to the point where, okay, everyone has automobiles, now we can build highways and freeways and parkways out to the suburbs. Well, that just pushes everyone out further, further, further. Absolutely. So it's just that same process on steroids. But so when we look at, say, other countries that had access to the automobile at the same time that we did, why did this process happen on steroids in the United States where when you go to, I've traveled a fair amount in my life, and uh, I have to say that America seems to be the country that is most built around the car in this way. Why did we take to it so specifically? Uh, So you're absolutely right. We're looking at, I believe it's about 880 uh, vehicles per thousand people. We have more vehicles than we have drivers to drive them. Even if we all jumped in and did our part, we would still have to leave an awful lot of cars parked. Right. Right. So uh, the the major reason, in my view, is we got there first. Mm. The United States uh, was by a generation or more ahead of any other country in uh, terms of embracing the automobile. You can ask why that is. Some of it is basic economics in terms of the levels of uh, wealth out in the countryside. Mm -hmm. So farmers in the United States, rural people were relatively well off compared to, say, European peasants, if you will. Um, We also had... uh, Uh, very much decentralized planning or no planning at all. So if you go to uh, England, for example, and even if you look at the railroads in England, the railroads as they were developed in England were developed to connect existing cities. The railroads in the United States were developed to create new cities. Atlanta did not exist until the railroads started. Really? So so we had open land. We had so-called virgin territory, although as we all know, people were living there. 
Um, but we also had, um, we were disinclined as a nation to sit down and do what, for example, the Swedes do, which is say, okay, let's put the factories here, the homes here, the commercial district there. That's not how we do things. That's not how we roll. Yeah. You'll notice, however, that as soon as people have enough wealth, uh, they very quickly gravitate towards the automobile. And if you look at China, for example, the speed with which that country is turning itself over into an automobile society is just staggering. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about those early days of the automobile. I, I understand that, you know, early on when the automobile was, you know, first became popular, it wasn't even clear that the internal combustion engine as the way to move the car around, uh, what, like as the engine method, uh, was a foregone conclusion. Like what were, uh, I, what were the range of cars available? What were the range of different ideas at that time? I think you've hit on a really interesting point. The first 4,000 vehicles in the country, about 1,500 of them are um, electric. Really? About 1,500 of them are steam. And the rest, the, the, the balance, about 1,000 are internal combustion. Now, steam cars, maybe, is that the next advancement? Because it took about 100 years for Elon to bring back the uh, the electric car. Is the steam car next? See, I, you know, <laughs> I, this is the biggest disappointment to me, and I write about it in the book. I mean, if you think of steampunk and cosplay, that stuff is so cool. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And what? Why, if I could be driving a steam car now, I'd be thrilled by that. I could put my goggles on and toot-toot around the countryside. Absolutely. And there was a, a car called the Doble. This is into the 1930s. It is a steam car. It is the most elegant, beautiful, incredible piece of engineering. You you would want to just watch this thing motorized without uh, even moving. And it was uh, uh, traveled on silent uh, power, really. You know, none of this uh, noisy uh, uh, gasoline engine stuff. So incredibly elegant. So why didn't it survive? Well, uh, one of the reasons is that it was not favored by regulation. So there's a great quote by a guy named uh, Maxim who was uh, early involved in electric vehicles. And he said, look, we could have had steam cars in the 1860s or 1870s. And in fact, we did. The automobile was invented many times. But it wasn't taken up. And one of the reasons was the city governments were not excited about having steam cars on their roads. Hmm. Steam engines had a tendency to blow up. <laughs> okay, there it is. <laughs> yeah. And that was true on, on steamships. That was true on locomotives. Uh, but in it's fact, high pressure. You know, the, the you steam got, you got cars that. did not have those same uh, dangers. They were at much lower pressure. Oh, okay. So steam worked. Um, steam had a... a, a a fuel economy problem, so to speak. It actually is fairly fuel efficient, but you had to keep adding water to it. So huh. you could only get so far before you had to add uh, water to it. That problem was eventually solved. The electric, which predated both uh, uh, gasoline cars and in, in a lot of ways steam cars in the city, um, was in a lot of ways the perfect solution, just as in a lot of ways it's the perfect solution today. It stopped easily. It started with a flick of a switch. It was quiet. It didn't smell. It didn't make noise. We know now that, you know, if you look at London and New York, the average speed in the city uh, for a vehicle is about 10 miles an hour, give mm -hmm. or take. Electric vehicle, no problem at all. And in fact, better than a gasoline vehicle 
Uh, a woman uh, challenged a man to a race. This was famously in uh, some of the motoring presses. And she said, yeah, okay, so maybe your top end is faster than mine, but let's run a real race. We're going to take a day. We're going to both go about our kind of daily, daily uh, uh, errands, and let's see who wins. Now, if you go back, this is around 1900, 19, 1905. Uh, okay, you pull up to the hardware store, you get your stuff. Then you got to get out and you got to crank the machine from the front. And maybe it doesn't quite start. You got to run to the steering wheel and you got to make some adjustments and you go crank it again and so forth and so on. This is the right? gasoline Meanwhile, engine you have to do that with. This is, the, I'm sorry, this is the gasoline engine, right? Meanwhile, our, our lady friend is getting into her uh, vehicle, flipping a switch and going from, you know, the dress shop down to the uh, yeah. uh, tea room and so forth. So it was a very practical machine. Here's what it didn't do. It wouldn't take you out into the countryside for a journey unprepared, which mm. is the way it was uh, described. The reason people wanted to do that was because of the bicycle. Hmm. Wait, okay, uh, hold on. Uh, why the bicycle? So prior to the automobile in the 1890s, there is an absolute bike craze. And it's hard yeah, to imagine I've how heard of this. insane this was. Yeah, and, it, and it's not just about people riding bikes. People, you know, are suddenly riding bikes. The bike chain's invented in the 1870s and, and suddenly, you know, the bike is, is safe, it's viable. You get, you know, telegrams delivered by bicycle and all of that kind of thing. But also the bicycle was sexy. The bicycle was cutting edge. And if you think about it, you know, those playing cards, right? You've seen them, the back of the playing cards. What do they have on them? A bicycle. Bicycle, bicycle playing right? cards. Yeah. Exactly. So the bicycle was where it was at. And and it was very much wrapped up into the culture. For example, women started, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever worn a dress trying a bicycle, but if you don't <laughs> tuck your cuffs in your pants and, you, you know, you yes. try to wear a dress doesn't work out well. But I've also seen political cartoons from that era about, uh, you know, how people were worried that women bicycling was them exhibiting loose morals, that it was raising a, a generation of, of young hellions, um, which is very, you know, very similar to any sort of like moral panic we see around any youth fad. Uh, but uh, yeah, in the late 19th century, it was over women bicycling. That's right. Kids today, these crazy kids today, and you know what it had to do with? <laughs> It had to do with those bike chains catching your dress. So what do you do if you're a woman? You start wearing bloomers. Ah, that created the bloomer. Exactly. So wow. these are puffy, puffy pants that come down to your knees. And then, <laughs> oh my God, your ankles are exposed. So yeah, that's the moral panic. That's the athleisure of the 19th century. That's the yoga pant of the 19th century is the bloomer. It, there you go. The yoga pan of the 19th century. <laughs> this, I just have to say, this is the thing about history that I love so much is that it sprawls out in every direction and every little thing that happens influences everything else. Fashion influences, transportation influences, uh, city planning influences the course of history. And it's uh, when you're actually tracking it, you almost never get this tidy little story of A happened then B happened. You get it like a multiplicity of of occasions in, you know, in every direction. But that's sort of what makes it so fascinating is seeing how all those things come together. Yeah, I agree. And obviously, you know, here we are thinking we're living in the present, but we're living in someone else's history, right? Oh someone my gosh, else's yeah. future past. What are we going to look like? You know, it, it seems <laughs> sensible. All we got to do is get rid of these cars. But uh, boy, it turns out to be a lot harder than we thought. So the, so the bicycle was creating, what, this romance of going out into the countryside for people? Absolutely. And uh, again, this fellow Maxim says, look, we could have had these cars before. Why didn't we? Well, certainly regulation was part of it. But another part of it was 
nobody had this desire or nobody had the imagination that you could, you know, go freely out into the countryside without a, a railroad timetable or being mm. stuck on a rail line. You could just go wherever you wanted. And his view was that the automobile was simply the bicycle's next iteration. Hmm. So the reason that electric cars and steam cars didn't catch on was because the gas engine, what specifically gave you that ability to go out into the countryside for long distances? It just had longer range? I think so. I think uh, I talk about this uh, in the book. I found this wonderful quote by an electrical engineer saying, you know, we could actually provide battery swapping stations or charging stations along those those roads out into the countryside. But a journey fully prearranged, as he described it, is not what we're looking for. That's not what people want. Whereas with gasoline, you could go uh, hither and yon, wherever you felt like it. There's another element here, too, though. I, you know, I talked before about how smelly and dirty and, and greasy and difficult to operate these early gasoline automobiles were. Yeah. Uh, sounds like a drawback, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, it does sound very bad to me. I don't like a smelly, greasy thing. Turns out not to be the case. Oh, why is that? Well, because young men particularly, but men in general uh, in this period are realizing that part of being a modern man is the ability to um, control machinery, to fix mm. machines. You know, that's really what made you manly. It was a macho thing, if you will. So um, famously, a guy named Albert Pope, who, who had the biggest bicycle company, and then he became a major producer of electric vehicles, said, you know, people aren't going to sit over an explosion. And <laughs> people don't want, right? People don't want all this greasy machinery with these knobs and gears and all this complexity. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, he was, he was wrong for a lot of these buyers. A lot of these early buyers were men who felt they needed to keep up, needed to be 20th century, and really wanted to prove their mettle by uh, pretending they knew <laughs> how to <laughs> fix a car, whether they did or not. Yeah, and that became such a big part of car culture. And the way that you describe that puts me in mind now of how, you know, people's associations with their Teslas, right? Now that we're in an era where people don't really fix cars themselves, uh, that, I mean, certainly you can, especially if you have an older car, but the cars that are being manufactured are so, you know, sort of iPhoneized <laughs> that uh, they're, they're very, very difficult to do anything but extremely routine maintenance on them yourself. Uh, you know, no one's, no one's building a Prius from scratch or anything like that. Uh, but the association that uh, men, especially young men, have with uh, Teslas, for example, as being this sort of new technological marvel that they get to participate in and, uh, you know, sort of control and enjoy, it strikes me as very similar to what you just described with the internal combustion engine 100 years ago. I think that's right. And in a way, it makes me feel old, you know, because I had uh, an early Apple II Plus and I played with it. And I got kind of, you know, at this point, the things are too complicated and, and I, I can't uh, do much with them. I did <laughs> actually I did actually build my own electric car. I had a really? 1972. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you about it. I had a 1972 Beetle. Uh, engine was taken out and uh, electric motor about the size of a watermelon in the back. I just used lead acid batteries, the kind people use to start their cars, nothing fancy. Uh, and it was great. It was great fun. Um, drove it around town. I live in a small town. Got rid of it for two reasons. But one of them is I did not feel safe taking my children around it. 
the <laughs> town is loaded with giant SUVs and pickup trucks. Mm. All we had to do was be hit once at a low speed and, and I would have, you know, it, yeah. I don't even want to imagine what would have happened. The other reason is I was done. I made it. It worked. I was done. There was nothing else to do to it. Right? And so when you own a 1972 Beetle, half of the fun of owning a 1972 Beetle for someone like me is fixing the carburetor, changing yeah. the oil pump, and so forth and so on. There's nothing to be done with these uh, EVs from my perspective. Kids today that, that get involved in um, modding their cars, they call it tuner culture. And what they're talking about is changing out chips and right. reprogramming uh, engine mapping. They're not talking about really getting grease under their fingernails. Right, hacking the firmware so that you can uh, play Doom on the on the card console. <laughs> Stuff like that. <laughs> exactly. uh, so, but, but you're saying that one of the reasons that the internal combustion engine beat those other two was because it was sort of branded and marketed as, as being manly is that the case well yes and no i mean i will say you're absolutely right it does become uh marketed as manly or more to the point the electric vehicle becomes marketed as for women a ladies uh. car henry ford bought his wife uh clara a 1914 i'm gonna say it was a detroit electric i don't think it was a baker i think it was detroit electric one of the fun things to do if you go to the website for the museum the henry ford museum is you can look around the interior of this car it had tufted upholstery. It had uh, vases. You put flowers in it. It was entirely glassed in. <laughs> wow. At the time, yeah. Oh, it was great. It's, you know, it, it frankly looks almost like a driverless car. It had a little tiny tiller that she would sit in, uh, a hold as she sat there. It had, uh, she sat in the back of the cabin. In front of her, facing her, would be a, a you know, a guest, another lady, maybe dressed, taking her down to the dress shop, and then another lady sitting next to her. Maybe they were going for lunch or what have you. But for all the world, you move that tiller to the side, and they just look like they're sitting at home in the drawing room. Wow. Yeah. And so that was marketed to women. There's no evidence that women, you know, somehow preferred tame, lovely little cars. Uh, this is very much a, a social construction of gender. Um, but it's certainly true that that uh, machine with the thrusting pistion, pistons that swallowed up uh, air and spit out fumes and roared and had to be muscled to life physically, uh, that was very much the car for men. And that very much became the American automobile. See, I love talking about these things because it makes us realize when we look at all the different models that sort of existed back then, it makes you realize that the way we think about cars today is not at all a foregone conclusion, that we could have gone in a different direction, but we just happen not to because of the way that history went. I'm also really struck by the way that you said that uh, the the Model T was designed to be bought once and never again. And obviously, we're now on a uh, on a in a world where car manufacturers want you to have a new car every three years. Uh, they've they've convinced us that renting your car uh, for three years and having a brand new one, uh, so they can they can sell you a new one and then sell the old one to someone for a markup as as pre pre owned. Uh, we're in that universe. So how did those models of ownership change over time? How did we get from there to here? The short answer is something called Salonism. So let me take you back. We're now uh, 1908. The Model T comes off the assembly line in October and people eat it up. People 
this is a car for people that never had a car before, mm. you know, and, and it was a crazy thing to drive. It had three pedals. None of them actually operated the gas. The gas was up on the steering wheel. I mean, it was, it was just a wacky machine. And if you as a driver today went back and tried to drive that machine, you'd be utterly confused. <laughs> but most of the people who bought one had never had a car. And uh, they would buy it for cash. That was something Henry Ford was very big on, using cash, not using credit. By the middle 1920s, though, he's producing 2 million cars a year, and they're reaching a, a point of saturation. So pretty much everybody who can afford a car has one. And it's around this time that uh, Ford's, uh, call him his foil, a guy named Alfred Sloan. You may have heard of Alf, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Yeah, before uh, all my all my PBS shows I used to watch as a kid, I feel like they'd say funding for this program is provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Exactly. And that's probably the best thing that Alfred P. Sloan did for the, for the world, that and the Sloan Kettering <laughs> Hospitals. Okay, um, but but we're yeah. about to describe something not so good, I take it? Well, what he also invented was planned obsolescence. And mm. this is the idea that, as you say, every three years, you need a new car. And he describes this quite clearly in his sort of autobiography of General Motors. And he says, the goal in each new model year is to create a certain level of dissatisfaction in the owner of the uh, car that's still perfectly viable as a transportation machine. And what he realized was by the mid-1920s, there's plenty of used cars around. If you need transportation, you can go buy a $40 Ford Model T or even a right. you know, $200 old Chevy. Yeah. So he stopped selling transportation and he started selling new. Mm. And one of the biggest innovations was color. So they came up with color paint that actually dried fast and lasted. And from that point on, the car was a fashion statement uh, of, of the highest order. Hmm. And that's when you begin to get this idea that every three years you need to buy a new car. And re-engineering cars, that's expensive, coming up with new, you know, innovative engineering, safety design, all of these kinds of things. Why do that when you can come up with a new car color? Or yeah. A, sh a shinier radio knob, right? Mm -hmm. Or a radio knob that looks like it came off a spaceship, right? <laughs> so, you know, just like fashion, it, it you, there's no reason to buy a new dress unless the hemline's too short and this year the hemlines are longer. Yeah. And again, he, he says this quite clearly. He says, uh, you know, the, the woe betide the car maker that does not follow the laws of the Paris fashion uh, maker. That, uh, that's a quote. Maker. Yeah. Wow. Um, that that also reminds me uh, more than anything of you know my relationship with technology with the iPhone. Say that uh, you know people people talk about it as though oh there's planned obsolescence like they make the things stop working. I don't buy that. I think the main reason uh, that. Uh, uh, you know, the, is the pressure of the new, like it's, it almost feels hard to resist. Like the last time I, uh, bought a new iPhone, I had gone three or four years without buying one. And I felt every time I did that as though it was almost like a resistance I had to make. Like I was fighting <laughs> back mentally going, no, 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 I'm not buying a new one. No, nah, I watched the keynote, but nope, I'm going to be fine with this. I'm, I'm going to hold out as long as I can. And, and I think instead of buying one every two years, which is the cycle, I managed to go, you know, three, 
three or four years. And I felt like, okay, I've done a really good deed. Now I can finally, <laughs> I can finally uh, unburden myself and, and purchase an X or whatever. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, uh, that sort of pressure is, you know, that, that, it's almost just the cycle itself of there's a new one every year and it's going to be slightly improved uh, that puts that pressure on you, whether or not you believe in it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, improved, improved over what? And we've seen this with phones now, right? They're kind of trying so desperately to get us to buy a new one. What's what's the new one? And as you say, this effort to resist that just pull of consumption, and it's true in all parts of our lives. But in terms of the automobile, it, it's just brutal. And it's worth pointing out that it actually worked really well. Mm-hmm. So we went from saturation to just explosion, right? So I need my own car that represents me. My wife needs her car that represents her. My teenager needs et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And if you can keep building cars and selling them every three years, look at the economic activity you're generating. So you're mm-hmm. actually generating wealth for people as well. Well, we have to take a short break. We'll be right back with more Dan Albert. Okay, we're back. Uh, So, Dan, I'd like to talk about how after cars became so popular, after, as you said, suddenly we're in a world where everybody has to have their own car that represents them, that's in the color of their choice. Uh, how did we start transforming our society around the car? For instance, the you know, the National Highway System, I said in the intro, is the largest public works project in American history. So it's literally, you know, uh, we, we put more of our uh, collective energy behind building that than anything else. Uh, why did that happen? And, and uh, what were the goals of that project? I think it's interesting. A lot of people think of the interstate highway system as, you know, 1956 is the year. And this is Eisenhower. This is, you know, ruffled potato chips, barbecues. Let's all live in the suburbs. Yeah. And that's certainly true, right? That's what the highway did and, and you know, uh, uh, tracked housing and so forth and so on. The, the origins of the highway system, the interstate highway system, really go back to the 1930s. And planners were uh, coming up with the highways as a way to uh, weave the country together, make the uh, economy more fluid. Um, automobiles were going to uh, remove friction in commerce. They were also going to use these highways to, get this, destroy the city. They looked at the city and they said, it's a slum. Huh. So we're going to really do people a favor because they're living in this terrible housing and we're just going to plow it under. We're going to get rid of these cities, which, by the way, happen to be full of, you know, undesirables and, and radicals and communists and anarchists, <laughs> right? And people, and, of, not, and people of racial backgrounds we don't like. Exactly, exactly. And we're going to create this new landscape, which is uh, a you know, built according to a, a racialist uh, agenda, a racial ideology, whereby we can segregate people. And, mm. you know, I, I, I don't want to put, um, put this out to say, you know, the highway engineers who were doing this were doing it uh, on their own for some nefarious purpose. Yeah, of course I think not. It's absolute, yeah, no, I think it's absolutely true that, that uh, they looked at the cities and said, these things are not fit for the automobile and we're going to build a world of automobiles. What we call sprawl, they call decentralization. Yeah, you can see how all those things go together, that the combination of 
the sort of scorn for the city. And I know that a lot of our cities were not in the best repair during that period, right? And general racial animus and the uh, federal policy of redlining that, uh, you know, ensured that uh, uh, white folks would have, you know, uh, be able to purchase homes. Uh, And this (laughs) sort of futuristic idea about the automobile, all those things go together to create that effect. Exactly. And, you know, This is 1950. People are still taking the bus. People are still taking uh, trains. People can still walk places. Uh, Families have one car. Very quickly, um, that will begin to change. It even, uh, you know, kind of expands rapidly in the 1980s uh, to a degree uh, not even expected in the 1950s. You know, this thing kind of got out of hand. uh, and, And now we are all of us trapped in the world that the automobile has Hmm. made. Is this something that people, that the average person wanted at the time, this transformation? Did people say, ah, yeah, get me out of the city, build me a highway. I love the, I love the Long Island Expressway. (laughs) You know, were people saying that? Uh, You know, it's funny, you say people, and we always have a hard time. We talk about what Americans wanted, what Americans didn't want. What's fascinating is that, yes, that's the narrative, but almost as soon as these highways reached places where people actually lived, the people who lived there said, no way, let's Mm. stop this, right? So, for example, Interstate 95 was supposed to go straight down through Washington, D.C., Uh, A group that called themselves the Emergency Committee on the Transportation Crisis formed about 1965 when this highway plan was coming in, and they stood up to stop it. And they went to public meetings, and they rallied in Congress and so forth. And their motto, their rallying cry was, no more white men's roads through black men's bedrooms. Wow. So now we get to 1968, there are riots in several cities, Martin Luther King is killed, um, and and race is very much a part of it. It's worth noting, though, that the people standing up against Interstate 95 and other highways just cutting up the District of Columbia were both black and white. Mm. What brought them together was that they lived in the city. And again, this this happened everywhere. This happened in cities all across the country as soon as those highways showed up. Again, from my, you know, my reading about Robert Moses that, you know, so many of those uh, expressways going through New York went right through neighborhoods, buildings were demolished, neighborhoods, thriving neighborhoods were cut in half and and destroyed. And and it wasn't just, it wasn't just uh, the neighborhoods of people of color, it was white neighborhoods as well. The the one thing they all had in common was that it was all poor neighborhoods, that uh, rich, they weren't putting any highways through rich folks' mansions on the Long Island Sound. That's right. And there's a there's two parts to that. One is it's expensive to put a highway on, <laughs> yeah. on, on waterfront in Long Island Sound, right? Uh, so, you know, there's a certain engineering logic. You put it into the poorest uh, uh, neighborhoods. But there was also this um, belief that they were doing people a favor, or at mm. least that was what, what they were claiming. But, you know, again, this was fought every, everywhere it happened. Camden, New Jersey, you know, people yeah. got up and they tried to stop it. Um, most places they were unsuccessful. Some places they were successful. Uh, we're now seeing, by the way, that, you know, uh, uh, Boston buried its uh, elevated highway. Uh, Seattle just buried its waterfront highway. Um, so uh, we're moving forward. We still have highways, but we're restoring some of the city. 
yeah. uh, to what it once was. It makes you wonder what we're doing today that we think we're doing in order to help people out, but which is actually hurting them and will hurt people into the future. Like there must be manifold things. I'm sure the audience listening can think of a couple. <laughs> but it, it always really strikes me that you know, I used to uh, spend a lot of time in upstate New York, and what I noticed about towns up there, and this is true of towns all across the country except for the, you know, very lately colonized parts of the country out in the west, but um, I think this is true down through the south as well, that every town uh, would always, say, have a, uh, you know, a central crossroads part of the town, right, where there's a post office and there's a city hall and there's a lot of businesses that are close together, um, and usually those parts of town are still very nice and there's some nice restaurants and things. That's everybody's favorite part of town. But nobody lives there. Everybody lives out in the outer lying areas. And those parts of the town are very ugly because uh, there's, you know, uh, uh, four lane roads going by Home Depots and Walmarts and strip malls and things like that. Um, and it, it always struck me that that older pattern of development, right, that those the, that first crossroads, this is my guess. You can tell me you're the, you're the expert. Uh, but that er, that earlier crossroads was built, you know, in the older, you know, in the, in the 19th century uh, when the town was first founded and everything else was built around it. And uh, the strange bit is that we all like that older pattern of development better. It, it feels better to us. That's where we'd rather spend our Friday night, not on the uh, on the highways and major roads that we built later, but which were at the time considered symbols of modernity. You have to understand, though, that, you know, people were escaping things when they were escaping those uh, downtowns back in the day. So uh, it was uh, housing stock that was becoming dilapidated. It was people uh, moving into town that uh, uh, maybe they didn't want to be near. Uh, it was not nice restaurants at at. Uh, at certain points, it was, you know, the gas station, the butcher, and so forth. We all like that now. Um, but the idea of economic efficiency, uh, the idea of the American dream of a quarter-acre lot and a single-family home, all of that, you know, those people honestly uh, came to that. This kind of new urbanism uh, is in some ways a, um, a fantasy, about mm. the past, you know, one, one mm. man's uh, old junk is another man's antique, I guess is the way to put it. Yeah, that's a fair point. And, and uh, I'm certainly as guilty as anyone of, of romanticizing a past that I would like to see in the future. Uh, I think that's a pretty universal human characteristic. And I think that's what I was doing in that last monologue. <laughs> Thank you for calling me on it. Um, <laughs> oh, I didn't mean to be. I didn't mean to be. It's just you called me an expert and I always puts me on my toes. <laughs> well, let's talk about this. Um, just talking about we've talked about the past of cars. Let's talk about the future of cars. Obviously, the big change that everyone is anticipating is autonomous, driverless, self-driving cars. Uh, we, a lot of people have sort of preconceived notions about what that future is going to look like, that it's going to make everything more efficient and safer, and oh, it's just around the corner and every problem will be solved once we reach it. Uh, what do you think about that idea from the perspective of someone who's, you know, has a deep historical knowledge about our relationship with the car? Um. I have to say I'm not impressed. <laughs> okay. Tell us why. So uh, uh, the real time I think about is the 1970s. Um, the end of the automobile was here. I'm going to uh, remember, I was thinking about it on the, the, I have to say it, on the train on the way down into <laughs> uh, to talk to you. 
Um, a guy named uh, John Jerome, he was the um, managing editor of Car and Driver, of all publications. And he wrote a book called The Death of the Automobile. And in the introduction, he says quite uh, precisely, the premise of this book is that the automobile must go. Hmm. And then what he does is take us through uh, his imaginary, you know, better car. It's super safe. It uh, operates for 100,000 miles with no trouble. It's got a little electric motor you can plug in and unplug uh, uh, if it has a problem. But he, he says in the end, we shouldn't even build that super duper dream car that I have in mind. And he says, you know, to design a better car to solve the problem that cars created is like building more highways to reduce traffic congestion, right? 30 years of, of building more highways, this is the 1970s, has only showed us that building more highways makes the problem worse. Yeah. So in, rea in reality, right, these are cars entering an automotive landscape. These, this is a way to make automobile travel safer, easier, cheaper. Anytime a product becomes safer, easier, cheaper, more convenient, we use more of it. Yeah. So the only thing I expect out of driverless cars is more cars. That's really fascinating. It, it makes me think of uh, a piece I read a year or two ago about how everyone thought that the LED light, which is a huge you know, technological advancement to go from incandescent light to compact fluorescent, we had a brief period, but then to LEDs, which use a fraction of the energy of incandescent lights. Uh, everyone thought that would be a huge increase in you know the amount of energy we're using so that we'd use a lot less energy, that we'd go much greener. Uh, but the result is now that light is so much cheaper and greener, we're just using a lot more of it. We put LEDs everywhere. We're blasting you know far more light than we did before because the cost has gone down so much. Uh, that always stuck with me as a dynamic. Uh, and you're saying you think the same thing would happen with an automobile once we make if we make it cheaper and easier and simpler to use, well, we're just going to use more of these things. Right. And why wouldn't we? You know, uh, a fellow named Dan Sperling, who's just a great uh, transportation advocate and engineer in uh, California, um, has written a book about this and said the solution is not electric cars or driverless cars or any of these other things. It's pooling. Mm. Pooling is the answer, right? What does he mean? He means carpooling. Yeah. Now, carpooling is not a new technology. <laughs> and yet, right, we haven't done it. You know, in, in during the war, there was a famous uh, poster. There was car sharing is a must. And the line was, it was a great poster. It showed a guy driving and they're sitting next to him, even though he doesn't notice, is Adolf Hitler. <laughs> And the tagline is, when you drive alone, alone, you drive with Hitler. You drive with right? Hitler, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, that kind of worked. People carpooled a lot more than they had I in, love, in the past. I love it. So blunt and to the point, you know. We don't need nuance in this. Let's just straight up, you're driving with Hitler. <laughs> you're doing the devil's work. Yeah. You know, I go back to John Jerome, 1972. We've been fighting this fight for half a century. Uh, you know, people have been uh, coming out of the woodwork since the 1960s, at the very least, saying this is madness. Yeah. And in instead of fewer automobiles and less automobile travel, it has metastasized. Yeah. We're doing three trillion miles a year as a country. 
It's nuts. And people talk about with driverless cars, the issue is, well, if you have an electric driverless car, so it costs you less dollars and has less emissions to get around, and you don't need to drive it yourself, well, why wouldn't people literally just have their cars circling the block <laughs> waiting for the, you, know, you don't need to fi- find a parking space. You can just have your car circle and come pick you up later if it doesn't cost you very much for to have it be on the road. Um, uh, it, 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 these all seem like means for us to fill up the the road with even more cars. And just because a car is electric doesn't mean that it has no emissions. It, it just has uh, less, um, but you know that's not counting the emissions that go into making the car. So I can see that point how uh, a technological improvement in the car isn't going to solve the problems created by cars. It could actually exacerbate them. Yeah. Now, there's one other element to this with driverless cars. It does change the business model. So, mm. the, 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 yeah. And so now we got to get down into the weeds a little bit, I guess. One of the earliest business models for the automobile was with a company called the Electric Vehicle Company. And they were in New York City, they were uh, in in Chicago and Philadelphia and Boston, and they had fleets of electric vehicles. You could get them on a long-term lease. You could buy them. They were fairly expensive, but you could also, they ran them as a taxi fleet. And that worked. And that was mobility as a service, mm-hmm. right? That's what Uber and Lyft and the others are now. We're going to yeah. sell you by the mile, right? Yeah. And these things could stay on the road forever because they had a battery swapping station, 90 seconds to swap the battery out for a new one. Uh, And this is what Uber and Lyft are all about. Problem with Uber and Lyft, anybody that's followed the stock knows that they don't seem to have a path to profitability. Yeah, at least not without doubling their prices. They've got to either double their prices or fire all their drivers. (laughs) Right. Uh, So their solution is driverless cars. And and, uh, Kalanick, who was the head of Uber, said it was an existential uh, problem, not not coming up with driverless cars. And in the early days of the Uber driverless car, I just learned this from a good book by uh, Mike Isaac uh, uh, called uh, Super Pumped, uh, all about uh, Uber. He said the uh, internal code name for their driverless car system was a dollar sign. <laughs> well... Uh, then it killed a person. So uh, that that put a, the brakes on their plans a little bit, right? Their driverless car system in testing literally led to someone's death, um, which is, you know, that's my final concern about driverless cars is that once they come in, uh, we already have organized our cities so much preferentially around what will, uh, around the needs of the car, right? That we have these rules. You can't step out into the street. Uh, you know, if you, uh, if you get hit by a car, it's your own fault. Uh, therefore, you know, we're going to privilege the uh, the car itself. You know, all the laws favor the car and everyone else has to sort of stay in their little box while they wait for the cars to pass, right? And once we're in a world where, okay, driverless car technology works pretty well, but oh, well, the algorithms aren't that great. So you have to make sure that, uh, you know, we've got to redesign all the roads so that driverless cars won't make any mistakes and to reduce the amount of random chaos 
best that can happen. So uh, that is where I really start to get worried. Like I literally saw a piece where a driverless car executive speculated that, well, we should just build cages around sidewalks that opened at predetermined intervals so pedestrians can't walk out into the street and that'll solve the problem. Um, and that is, that's a real concern for me is that we're going to, once humans aren't behind the wheel, well, now we're just going to make the, the roads safe for algorithms to drive, basically. I saw that same piece and I found it hilarious. One of the premises of the driverless car is that we are horrible drivers <laughs> and, and 40,000 people are dying a year because we're such horrible drivers. Yeah. The reality is, and, and of course, as you know, now they're finding that actually we may have to wait a while on these driverless cars because they're not working all that well. Yeah. It turns out, right? It turns out we're not so horrible. It just turns out that driving is really, really hard. Yeah. And it's not hard because, you know, if you're on a NASCAR track, it's not hard. You just go around in a circle. There's nothing to bump into. If you're on an interstate highway system, it's not that hard to do. It's really, really hard in the city or in a congested area or even in a small town. Why? Because you're being asked to drive on a system, on a set of roads and, and in, in a social uh, uh, environment where... It's incredibly complicated. You have to make all kinds of decisions all the time. Be aware of this. Be aware of that. Watch out for this and worry about where you're going tomorrow night for your dinner with so-and-so. And, oh, my God, I overslept. Yeah. It would be really nice if we simply fixed the world now. We don't have to put people in cages on the sidewalks. We do have to reorganize our physical environment for cyclists, for walkers, for people who are not in two-ton cages yeah. of their own so that actually it becomes easier to drive and it becomes easier for driverless cars to negotiate the world. Right. Do you think that, I mean, you're a self-described car guy, right? Which is different than uh, uh, how a lot of urbanists or uh, people who hope to see the death of the car, <laughs> people would describe themselves. Do you feel that, you know, we've had about a hundred years of car culture. Do you feel that there are good qualities about American car culture that we should do well to preserve? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I sort of jokingly make fun of car culture and, and you know, uh, espouse my rejection to it, but I'm not intolerant of it. And and when I meet someone who really loves their car, I'm, I, I think that's a really cool, wonderful thing. And uh, yeah, I mean, what's, what's worth saving and protecting the the thing i always come back to and i you know i think about my daughter my oldest daughter who um she's not a car guy in the sense she can barely put gas into the minivan right but she loves <laughs> to get in that minivan and drive yeah and when she and when she does the iphone is not in her hand she's not mm -hmm. allowed to have it in her hand she's not at work She's not on uh, social marketing, I call it, you know, social media, getting advertised to. Um, she is really in the now. And she will literally go out and we'll be like, where were you? Oh, I was driving. Mm. Where'd you go? Boston. Boston? Why'd you go to Boston? Eh, it's relaxing. <laughs> and it's that, right? So it's that driving as that, I'll, I'll call it interstitial space. You're, you're sort of not at work. You're not susceptible to commoditized leisure. And you have to pay enough attention, one would hope, so you're not crashing into people, um, but not so much attention that your mind can't can't wander and you can't really think about uh, uh, other things. And people talk about this, right? You know, if I'm at home, the kids are bugging me. If I'm at work, well, it's work. But when I'm in the car, I am alone. Yeah. And 
Right. And, and it's that experience of driving. Now, does it have to be driving? I don't know. I don't think so. I get that uh, out of, there... you know, I get that out of walking and uh, uh, taking public transportation. I, I feel I have that same time. I look forward to that time. And it's for me, it's simply I just don't enjoy the activity of driving the way other people do. Um, but, yeah, that sort of time is is really valuable to us. Yeah, I think so. And I, and I agree with you, you know, to be able to go out on a walk and to be able to, uh, you know, ride on the bus and, and meditate and, and look at the, you know, people watching is the best thing to do on the bus. Oh, all yeah. of that is, yeah, all, all of that is there. I think what scares me, we, even with a driverless car, is you're basically going from a screen at work to a screen in the car to a screen at home. <laughs> right. right? And, and that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about losing that uh in anything where you lose that interstitial space uh, yeah i think is is lost and then as you say people people do love their cars um for whatever reason for that sense of freedom for that road trip uh for those experiences we have with one another in the car you know i think a lot about the relationships people have through cars um and and i think that's important teaching a kid to drive that's a really uh unique experience you know your kid has um, certainly since puberty, not wanted to learn anything from you or pay any attention to you. And suddenly they have to, right? And, and suddenly they, they have to be with you and they want to be with you because you actually know something they don't know. And that, yeah. that's a, that remains, a, I found, and I think other people have spoken to it, um, a, a unique and uh, pretty interesting experience. Yeah, and that experience of the road trip, you know, when I, when, me and my uh, partner Lisa started uh, started dating. The first thing that we did, she she moved from Los Angeles to New York, where I was living, and I flew to Los Angeles, and we road tripped across the country in her uh, little old uh, Ford Ranger pickup truck. And you know, we took two lane highways and went down through the South, went through Arizona and uh, Texas, and you know, Louisiana, up through the Mississippi Delta, and saw the country. And it's still one of the most uh, my happiest memories and profound experiences I've had. And it's not an experience that, you know, I, I love long train trips too. And I have great memories of long train trips, but there's a different quality to a road trip that you can only get in that way. And uh, so I, I hope that, uh, <laughs> you know, my main beef with the car is, is as a means of commuting, as a way of getting to work and around your own community. But that doesn't mean that we need to lose all those experiences altogether uh, in, in every aspect of our lives. It just means that, hey, if we could get rid of the most harmful 80%, we'd be in much better shape. I, I wonder if you have, as my last question, uh, you said that you've been feeling that the end of the American car is is coming for, for decades now. Do you still feel that way? And, and what do you think the future holds for the car in American life? Uh, I want to tell you that my happy vision of the future is – a world in which we all have our own automobiles where we can turn off the GPS and do as you've just described, take that road trip, wander the back roads, get lost and have new experiences, but where we don't actually need to use the automobile for 80% of uh, uh, what we do with it. Right. When I said I've been expecting the end of the car for a long time, um, I really feel like I'm once burned, twice shy. Mm -hmm. right? I really did in the 1970s expect the end of the automobile. Right? We, had, we had movies about it. We had books about it. Serious people were talking about it. The DC Metro was built. I really, really expected this beautiful new world of bicycles and mass transit. 
and then the eighties hmm. and ever right ever since then it's just gotten worse, yeah, bigger cars, more cars, driving faster, more aggressively, more highways, more sprawl, and so do I expect the end of the automobile? Oh, I hope so, but um, not in, uh, well, my lifetime, I hate to say it. Well, but there are still, you know, positive signs. I mean, in uh, in Los Angeles here, they're building new subway lines. Now they are, they also just cut bus service a little bit. So, you know, there's, maybe it's, uh, are we going one step forward, two steps back, or the reverse? It's a little hard to say, but uh, you do see in cities uh, the awareness of mass transit and, and walkability as being virtues that we want to cultivate. You, you do see that growing, I feel, although I might be living in a bubble. I don't know. What do you think? No, I think you're absolutely right. And, and you know, uh, young people who uh, grew up in the suburbs and became grownups, they want their kids to live in communities like that. I think we're far more conscious than we once were of the inequality created by an uh, automobile-dependent uh, landscape. And then obviously climate change, health consequences, all of those things are now uh, mainstream. So I do think we are uh, trying to uh, move in, in a lot of places and in a lot of ways yeah. away from the automobile. I know. I think you're absolutely right. It is a very long road, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> we sell, right? We sell 16 or 17 million cars a year. Uh, about 20% of cars are over 18 years old. Uh, the average car is 12 years old. So when you, you know, if you said tomorrow, uh, we would stop selling cars entirely. We're still looking at a very long time before uh, the car is gone. Well, I thank you so much for coming on to walk us through that past and our, our possible future. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dan. Well, Adam, it was great to be invited. I love talking about cars, and <laughs> uh, uh, I would be happy to talk with you again. Thanks. <laughs> thank you. Thank you again to Dan Albert for coming on the show. His book is Are We There Yet? The American Automobile Past, Present, and Driverless. Check it out. That is it for us this week on Factually. I'd like to thank our producer, Dana Wickens, our researcher, Sam Roudman, and Andrew W.K. for our theme song. If you'd like more interesting information for me, check out my website, adamconover.net, and sign up for my mailing list. Until then, that's it for us this week on Factually. We'll see you next time. Factually.